Well, today we come to chapter 33 of the book of Genesis, so please go ahead and open your Bibles up there. Genesis chapter 33. And my teaching today will be about 10 or 15 minutes shorter than usual, but it's a short chapter, and I really want to leave chapter 34 to be covered all in one sitting if possible, so I'm not going to go into chapter 34 today. So we'll just cover the first are the only 20 verses here in uh, Genesis 33. So if everyone's there, let's go ahead and jump on into it. Verse one, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and there Esau was coming. And with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Now, if you remember from our study last week, if you were here, Jacob was more than just a little bit concerned about this moment in time here where he was again going to see his brother Esau. He was actually very fearful of this moment in time. Um, what would Esau do? Was Esau still bitter toward him, um, you know, for stealing his birthright and his father's blessing? Genesis 27:41 tells us that Esau hated Jacob for this reason. So Jacob has been very worried about meeting his brother again, and now the time has come. Jacob was prepared for the worst, but as we saw in chapter 32, we saw Jacob prepared for the worst, but he prayed for the best. And then verse 2 continues here, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So it's kind of interesting here how Jacob seems to put his family in an order of least importance to him, um, or to most important to him, right? Now, maybe this wasn't the case, but it sure seems as if that's what he did here. If you remember, Rachel gave Jacob her maidservant as a wife, and then Leah did the same. Jacob then had children with those two women. Jacob, of course, first had children with Leah, but we're told that he didn't love Leah as he loved Rachel, right? Then, of course, Rachel finally had a child with him named Joseph. And Jacob arranges them here in that order there in verse two, you see. Then in verse three, Jacob goes out in front of them and there he bows to his brother seven times. Now, this is a very significant moment and one that requires a lot of thought in regards to the appropriateness of Jacob's actions here, what Jacob is doing. Was this right or wrong, what Jacob was doing here in bowing to his brother like this? Well, let's dig a little deeper into the subject here. Let's look back at Genesis chapter 25. Go ahead and turn there for a moment. Genesis 25. And let's look down and we'll start reading in verse 21. Now, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, 
if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So the older child was Esau because he was born first. He came out first. According to the word of the Lord to Rebekah, the older child Esau would be a servant to the younger child Jacob. So what in the world was Jacob doing back in Genesis chapter 33 when he bowed down seven times to his brother Esau? In the ancient world, bowing down seven times before a person like this was indicating to them that they were your Lord and you were their servant. They say that uh, historical records show that in the royal court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the servants would bow down seven times before him as a demonstration of their complete submission to him as their Lord. And for Jacob, this was not the way it was supposed to be. But Jacob was simply acting upon his fear rather than upon his faith, right? Now, I can't fault him for it because if you and I were honest, and it might be an easy thing to do if we look at things with our natural eyes and our natural understanding, right? If we look at things in that way. If you look down at verse 27 here in chapter 25, it says that the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. So Esau was indeed the more fierce one, and Jacob was the more timid one. It's still the same today as it relates to these two people groups that came out of as uh, came out of these twins. One is an aggressor, and the other would rather just live in a mild manner when you consider those two nations today. But as we also saw back there in verse 23, one people shall be stronger than the other. And today, every time the aggressor attacks the more mild ones, right? The aggressor always gets smacked back, and then what do they do? They cry foul. And all the rest of the world rebukes the mild ones for reacting and protecting themselves. Even the United States in recent years have, has chosen to speak out against Israel as if they don't have the right to protect themselves. But getting, on back, getting back on track here, Jacob should not have bowed to Esau in this manner. But Jacob wasn't prepared for war. That's not the man that he was. So he was very vulnerable against a skilled outdoorsman such as his brother Esau. And again, he had no clue how his brother was going to come to him. He had no clue what it was going to be like. So he bows before his brother in an act of submission. But to his surprise, I'm sure, his brother reacts very differently. I'm back now in Genesis 33 and verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So a lot of years have gone by since they last were face to face, right? 20 years to be exact. A lot of water under the bridge, I'm sure. And as we follow the story 
as we follow this story, God is still working out his good pleasure in the life of Jacob, now known as Israel, right? A nation of people came from Esau, just as God has, has promised, as did from Jacob as well. But Israel is God's chosen people, the people that he would work through to bring forth his ultimate plan for this earth. Remember, all the way back in Genesis chapter three, mankind lost that personal and intimate relationship with God the Father by disobeying his words and sinning against him. God then began his plan to restore mankind back to a personal relationship with him. And he would do so using a certain group of people. Ultimately, God himself would become a human being, Emmanuel, right? God with us. He would take on human flesh as we read about in John chapter one. He would become a man and his name would be Jesus, a Jew, the stepson of a carpenter, but the son of God, born to a virgin named Mary, right? And again, we're way back now at the beginning of the whole story. As we read in Genesis here, we're way back at the beginning of all of that story. And we're learning about the people group through whom God would work, the Israelites. They would come from this man, Jacob, okay? So in reality, Jacob didn't really need to fear his brother, did he? But I suppose if I were in Jacob's shoes, I would have maybe reacted in the same way. But you and I can learn from this this morning. We know that if we are submitted to God, that our God is for us. We know that he wants us to be a people that walks not by sight, but rather by faith. Not in fear, but rather in faith, right? That's how he wants us to live. We still live in a fallen world. And there are still many trials and tragedies that happen in this life. But in the end, we win if we stay the course, if we continue in the faith, right? Don't let fear control your actions in this life, okay? Go to God in prayer regularly and then walk by faith in him and what he shows you in his word, what he teaches us in his word, okay? You remember I talked to you about Jacob's prayer last week, but let's look at it again. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 32, and we're going to look down and start reading in verse 9. Actually, this prayer will cover verses 9 through 12. This was Jacob's prayer. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, The Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. Now pause right there because Jacob knows the faithfulness that God has shown his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. He knows this faithfulness. He has this in his family's history. And in verse 10, Jacob prays, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. So Jacob knows here that God has shown him mercy in this life. 
and that God has taught him truth in this life. And he's praying this prayer right after he gets news that Esau's coming, that Esau's coming with 400 men. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Okay, so just like um, Jacob does here, it's okay for us to admit to God that we are fearful at times in this life, that we're weak, okay? That we don't know what to do. It's no fun when hard times come in this life. It's no fun when you don't know what to do and when you feel like you're all alone. But we can take that to God. We can cry out to God. But Jacob says in verse 12, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And, you know, that's the key fact right there, isn't it? Right? It was going to be well with Jacob. He and his people had a hope and a future. And this is the faith, this is the faith that Jacob could have stood on. Esau was not going to kill Jacob and massacre his family because God had a plan far bigger than man can interrupt. Even though Jacob bowed down in fear, his people would be the chosen people as it pertained to God's plan. And we can trust and we can rest in the fact that God has a plan for us, that God is in control. He wants our, our every thought, everything about us completely surrendered to him and he will work all things together for good, no matter what we go through in this life. But isn't it amazing though that God's chosen people would go on to, to seemingly always be underdogs in this world. They would always be the object of ridicule and hatred, the Israelites. They will go into years of slavery, which Moses will lead them out of. And even in recent history, we know that they would be victims of the Holocaust under the evil regime of a man named Hitler. But they would survive. And God's still not done with them yet. You can read Romans chapter 11 this week if you get a chance, right? Today, you and me as Gentiles, we sit here as beneficiaries of the Jews rejecting the Messiah for the time being. As a result of their rejection, we now have the opportunity as Gentiles to come back into a personal relationship with the Father God as a result of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we receive Jesus by faith and we come back into that place with God and then we walk in that faith, serving God. So Jacob's now, again, Jacob's now bowing down to Esau. That was a moment of weakness for him and his people. And we've all had moments of weakness in this life, if we're honest. We just need to get back and realize that there's nothing nor no one in this world that we need to bow down before except the God of heaven our, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we turn back to Genesis 33, Jacob's fears were unfounded, right? Because his brother wasn't there to kill him after all. His brother instead was happy to see him and embraced him. Then in verse 5, it says of Esau, right? And he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. 
Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all of this company which I met? So pause right there for a moment, because Esau here is inquiring of Jacob as to why he sent all that livestock ahead of him as a gift. That's what Jacob had done. He sent his servants ahead with some livestock to give him. And Jacob's saying, what do you mean by, what do you mean by doing this? And Jacob replies in verse 8, and he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Well, you know, there is a Proverbs, um, a proverb in Proverbs 21, 14 that says a gift pacifies anger. So Jacob was just simply giving that a try here with Esau. But Esau says in verse nine, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. So Jacob is really blessed by the fact that Esau is pleased to see him rather than still being angry with him 20 years later, right? To Jacob, it's like seeing the face of God because he simply can't believe that his brother has favor upon him. He didn't think the situation would work out like this. So it's like seeing the face of God. God's grace is upon him here. So he really wants Esau to take the gift of the livestock. And finally, Esau accepts it. But isn't it amazing, though, too, that the mercy that God has shown us in our lives, if we take time to think about it, right? Sometimes we complain because we don't think that we get what we deserve in this life. But in reality, we should be thankful in most cases that we don't get what we deserve in this life, right? In one way or another, we have all wronged each other in one way, shape, or form. We all trip up. We all make mistakes. We all get off course, right? We, we say the wrong things. We do the wrong things. And if God was some angry judge somewhere up above, right, we would have been annihilated by now, I'm sure. But God is a God of mercy. God is a God of love. And today, we all have the opportunity Everyone in this world has the opportunity to come to that love and to come to God's grace. Jacob confesses there in verse 11 that God has dealt graciously with me. He says, if we take time to think on it deeply enough, I'm sure that we all will arrive at the same conclusion that God is a God of grace who deals graciously with us. But again, the moment that Jacob feared had now passed and it didn't work out quite the way that he feared that it would. But again, if we put ourselves in his shoes and we go back and we read what he did, he prepared for the worst, but he prayed for the best. And that's what I talked about last week. And him and Esau, though, will now move on. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go and I will go before you. So Esau's saying, hey, come on, brother, let's go. I'll lead the way. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. 
And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and say, Now again, Jacob's kind of got it all wrong here, calling Esau Lord and himself a servant of Esau as he does, because that's not the way that God would have it work out in regards to these people, these two nations. But again, isn't it interesting, though, that for a decent amount of time, the the Israelis, the, the Israelites, I should say, they would be servants to an Arab nation, but God would raise up a deliverer for them, okay? For the Israelites, the deliverer was Moses, and we'll eventually get to the book of Exodus, and we'll learn that fact, but much of the world today, both Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, are still in bondage today. They are in bondage to sin, and they don't know the freedom that the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, has offered to them, right? You see, this is what we can learn by reading these Old Testament historical facts. We can learn from how the Israelites learned, and in some cases from how what they didn't learn, okay? What they did do and what they didn't do. They as a people would end up in bondage in need of a deliverer, in need of a savior, if you will. And it is a picture for you and me of how we are in bondage today as a people to sin. And we needed a deliverer. We needed a Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is not just our deliverer, our Savior. He is the one and only Savior to whom the whole world must turn to. See, we don't have just a religion where Jesus is the head of our religion. Jesus is the only Savior for all of the world. No matter what religions people serve, there's only Jesus, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. But you know, Jesus made a statement that's recorded in John chapter 3, verse 19, as to why it's hard for some people to turn to Jesus as Savior. Let's mark this page and turn there to the Gospel of John chapter 3. And we'll start reading in a verse very familiar to all of us here, uh, chapter, uh, verse 16. So John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. 
So we see a contrast, a contrast here between walking in the truth and walking in evil, walking in sin, if you will, right? It's the same contrast between walking by sight and walking by faith, because we do one or the other. Those that love walking in sin or walking by sight, walking in darkness, they don't like to come to the light, so they're not going to come to Jesus as their deliverer, as their savior, for that reason. They have to come to a place in their lives where they're broken and they realize they need a savior, right? And the only thing that prohibits them from coming is that they would rather just continue in their sin. There are others, though, that do come in a small sense. They come to religion. And in a sense, they just find a place to hide. Because some religions offer men and women as ministers or priests that will stand between them and God and offer them forgiveness, right? But we know from 1 Timothy 2.5 that there's only one God and only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Your priest, your religion means nothing when it comes to your salvation. Jesus himself said, as recorded in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But again, people will run to man-made religion or they'll simply ignore coming to Jesus because they want to stay in their sinful practices. And their religion offers them the opportunity to continue in sin and every week be forgiven. You know, but continue in sin and every week be forgiven and on and on it goes, right? So the Israelites give us a a picture of a people that ended up in bondage because they would go on and in many ways they would harden their hearts to the word of the Lord. And they wouldn't take the word of the Lord seriously in their lives. And people today don't want to hear the word of the Lord. So they either ignore it or, again, they find a religion where they don't have to read it. And in so doing, they are refusing the only deliverer that we have, and that is Jesus Christ. So as we turn back to Genesis chapter 33, again, I'm I'm repeating this time and time again here, but Jacob should not have been bowing down to Esau nor should he have acted as if he was Esau's servant. And now that he's out of danger with Esau, he's going to just move Esau along his way. He doesn't want to travel with Esau. And verse 15 continues and says, and Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. Okay, so once again, as I've tried to remind you on a couple of occasions, there's a lot of time that passes by between these verses that we're reading here in the book of Genesis. Right? Sometimes we'll be, giving a, we'll be given a time frame and other times we will not. But there in verse 17, we see that Jacob went to a place called Sukkoth. He built himself a house and he made booths for his livestock. 
The name Sakathan is a Hebrew word that means booths. But again, my point is here is that it takes time to travel. It takes time to build a house and booths for your livestock. And you're not going to do all of this just for an overnight stay someplace or just for a one-week stay or a two-week stay. So I'm sure some years have gone by now as we're reading this. And just keep that in mind as we go through Genesis. And then verse 18 says, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, El Elohe Israel simply means the mighty God of Israel. And that's what Jacob calls this altar. But this is not yet the place where God wanted Jacob to ultimately be. And we will find in chapter 34 that Jacob is going to run into some really bad family problems as a result of stopping here in this place called Shechem. Remember, not many verses back, Jacob had just told his brother that he would come back to the city of Seir where their father lived. But Jacob made a stop along the way in a place and amongst the people where he should not have been. He should not be here. You've heard the saying that bad company corrupts good morals, right? Well, that's not actually just a saying. It's actually taken from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. And we really need to take that to heart. Evil company corrupts good morals. And we're going to see next week in chapter 34, as Jacob plants his family around an ungodly group of people, and he begins to hang around the wrong group of people with his family, that there is indeed going to be some major problems. And we're going to expound on that next week on one of those problems. And I'll give you a fair warning that some of what we'll cover next week will be hard-hitting and it'll go against the way of our culture today. But it's in the word of God and we must deal with it, okay? But with that little teaser for next week, we'll stop here for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. Again, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is our comforter, our counselor, our teacher, our guide. Lord, I pray that we will all recognize our need for you. And I pray for those that we will come in contact with in the coming week that don't know you as Lord and Savior, those that are dying without you and losing their souls. There are many around us that seem to be prospering, that seem to be gaining the whole world, but yet they're losing their own soul. And Lord, we know the truth, for you are the truth. You are the way. You are the life. And you are the only way, Lord. And I pray that you will give us opportunity to shine your light. And Lord, that, that we would not make the mistake of bowing down to this world in any way, shape, or form. But Lord, that we will understand your will for our lives and your plan and your purpose in our lives 
as we see it in your word. And that, Lord, we will bow before only you, our great and mighty God. So we love you, Lord, and we just thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.